So as uh, most of you know, and if you don't, you'll, you'll know now, that I, I grew up in a uh, non-church home, non-religious altogether. So likely my first exposure to Christianity was the movie Ben-Hur. Now my, ma, uh, my mom loved going to drive-in theaters and they were real popular when I was, when I was growing up. So I, I know that I saw it and I'm quite sure that I saw it when it first came out in 1960. I was five or six years old. And there were some awesome chariot scenes. Totally. If you haven't seen it, you need to, you need to watch it. No CGI for us. No, no. Real chariots. Real horses, real riders. But there were some other scenes as well. In fact, the movie won 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Actor. Now, I know a lot of you haven't heard it, so bear with me for just a second. And uh, I'll just kind of give you the partial plot line. The movie revolves around the life of a prominent Jewish man uh, living in Jerusalem at about 30 A.D. So you have Judah Ben-Hur was his name, and the backdrop was the budding uh, ministry of Jesus Christ, and then uh, following that, the budding uh, church. But because of jealousy and envy, Judah was betrayed by a childhood friend. And he was sent to spend the rest of his life, which would be short, uh, for most people, chained to a, an oar on a Roman ship. His sister and mother were thrown into prison and sentenced to life. Judah was arrested. He was forced marched through the desert. But as they went through Nazareth, they stopped for some water. And this was just prior to the launch of the ministry of Jesus And Jesus saw them through the window. And I want you to watch what happens next. The power in that scene is from a face and eyes we never saw. But it was the penetrating gaze of Jesus Christ on two people. On the one, Judah He was left with a sense of peace and an overwhelming sense of who is this person who would care for me? And the other, the same gaze, he couldn't even maintain eye contact. He was filled with shame and guilt. He couldn't maintain and the best he could do was recover himself and tell him, let's move on. The same gaze of Jesus Christ. And this gaze is one that penetrates. He looks deep. It's a powerful gaze. He sees beneath the surface. He goes straight to the heart when he looks at you, when he looks at me. Read with me Revelation 2, 18-29. And here we'll find something about the gaze of Jesus. We'll find some more things as well. But it's an interesting letter here. Chapter 2, 18 through 29. We find the longest letter to the smallest church. Interesting. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, or Thyatira, 
the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and servant, service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what we find right away in this reading is that the, the Lord's very first words speak of both approval and judgment. He says unto the angel of the church of Thyatira, uh, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. This is the one and only time in the book of Revelation where Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of God. He is talking at this moment. He's stressing His deity and His eyes like blazing fire. Eyes that that pierce the facades of our life, the disguises, the masks that we wear, the posturing and the pretensions. He is right there to the heart. Thyatira had a problem. They also had a lot of wonderful ministries. Uh, I believe that there's tremendous commendation here. The Lord commends for their deeds, their love, their service, their faith, their perseverance. But he says in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So on the outside, Thyatira, much like Ephesus, looked like a perfect church. That's a church you would want to go to. And in fact, there were many people, perhaps most of the people in that church were fully following Christ. But there was a part of it that was rotten. When I was growing up, I would hear often the phrase, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Perhaps you've uh, heard that as well. And what it means is that it only takes one person or a thing to ruin an entire context. 
It doesn't take much. And as it turns out, uh, scientifically, it's true. Uh, <laughs> one bad, overripe apple can ruin all of the rest of the apples. Turns out that the culprit is ethylene gas. I guess that's all natural and everything, but what it does is it, when that gas starts coming out of that bad apple, it communicates to all the other apples, hey, time to ripen up, folks. And so they do. And you end up with a whole batch of bad fruit. Well, the bad apple in this church was a woman whom Jesus calls Jezebel. Now, okay, I don't believe that that was her name. It certainly could have been, but I'll give you a few reasons here in a, here in a second. I believe it's more of a designation. It was, he was referencing her as something that was a part of that church in terms of its character that shouldn't have been there. You know, we've all heard uh, Shakespeare's Juliet uh, when she says, "'Tis uh, but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague.'" What's a Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. One would think that's Romeo talking to Juliet, but <laughs> no, that was Juliet talking to Romeo. And what Juliet argued is certainly true. It, it, you are who you are regardless of your name. She was right, but she was also woefully wrong because names do mean something. And Jezebel, that's a name that's been despised for nigh to 3,000 years. In fact, I, I said, you know what, I, I need to look this up. So I went over to My Name Statistics, and they had done an analysis based on the 80 years that Social Security has been, been around, and uh, they found that there have been 144 people named Jezebel, all female. Compare that to Mary, which is three and a half million. That's living today. Uh, but... What a strange world we live in. Do you know how strange the world we live in is? Jezebel is making a comeback in our society today because she is viewed by certain portions of the population as a woman who was truly empowered. So we need to name our daughters uh, Jezebel. Now, in the time of Jesus in the ancient Near East there, you can't find a Jezebel. I mean, she wrecked the name for everybody. Besides that, Baal worship hadn't been practiced for a thousand years. So why would they do that? Let's find some other new god. Let's go after like Apollo or Venus or Aphrodite or something along those lines. So who was she? What is Jesus Christ, uh, what does that name describe about her? Who was the original holder of the name? Now, most of us know most of these details, but just to freshen your memory, she was a Sidonian princess who came to Israel, northern Israel, and she became uh, Ahab's wife. So she was the queen over all of northern Israel. And she was a dedicated, devoted follower of uh, Baal worship. And so she got that started in Israel. And I mean, and she really pushed it hard. Now, Baal was a fertility god, 
And his worship involved immoral practices. Uh, when they had temples or the groves, didn't matter. They had uh, prostitutes, both male and female. And Jezebel made this religion so popular in Israel that ultimately that's why the ten tribes were completely dispersed. You can't find any of them today. They're gone. The Lord judged northern Israel such that they are, they, they, they're not going to be reconstituted in any kind of a natural way. It will be supernatural. She supported 800, there were 800 prophets of Baal that ate at her table. It doesn't mean that she had a big table. It means she, she provided for them. She provided for their food, their shelter. She was so dedicated. She tried to kill Elijah after the encounter on Mount Carmel, you know, when fire came down and consumed the sacrifice. And then, and then she was just a, a mean person, right? Her, her husband Ahab, oh, I want this vineyard over there. Isn't that such a nice vineyard? So she says, hey, we'll take care of it. She goes and kills Naboth. She gets Naboth killed so that she can give her husband a birthday present. She was ruthless. She was immoral. She was a seducer. And that's why Jesus used her name for this woman in Thyatira. But what was the real problem? I mean, people have all kinds of unusual thoughts and influences. And I mean, in that sense, this woman, whatever her name was, Jezebel, she was no different. The problem was not her. The problem was the leadership in the church. They tolerated her teaching. So what was her teaching? So to understand, to have some, any kind of notion of what she taught, we have to look at a little bit of culture in Thyatira. So Thyatira is located about 35 miles southeast of Pergamum. And it was a very small, but it was very busy because it was right on a major trade uh, route and uh, it was a, a busy place. Rome loved it. Uh, what had happened was guilds, uh, what our, I suppose our modern concept of unions would be, but guilds actually founded this city. And so it was a city such that if you wanted to uh, work there, you wanted to live there, you had to be a member of a guild. That's just the way it was. So they had carpenters and dyers and sellers of goods, tent makers and so forth. You'll remember a woman came from Thyatira and she was actually instrumental in the Apostle Paul's development of the church at Philippi. Her name was Lydia. She was from Thyatira and she was a seller of purple. Because the plant that made the purple came from the region around Thyatira. It was difficult, I tell you, it was difficult to be a Christian in Thyatira. Because you had to belong to a guild if you wanted to work. If you were independently wealthy, hey, no problem. But if you wanted to work, you had to be a part of the guild. The great British Bible scholar William Barclay wrote these words. He said, now, these guilds met frequently, and they met for a common meal. Such a meal was, at least in part, a religious ceremony. They would probably meet in a, a, a temple, and uh, 
and it would uh, begin with libations to the to the gods and the meal and so forth, and all the meat that would be eaten would consumed would be meat that had been offered to that whatever the idol that was in that temple at the time. Now the official position of the church, rightly so, uh, meant that a Christian could not attend such a meal. So this was a problem uh, that these Christians faced. To make a living, they had to belong to a guild, or they had to move. Uh, They couldn't stay there, or they had to find some means of support. The problem is, is to attend the guild meetings would leave you at least involved or heavily pressured to become involved with idol worship, eating that meat, that food that had been sacrificed to idols, and in some cases, ceremonial sex. So what was it that Jezebel taught? Apparently, she taught that if your trade guild required you to worship an idol, to eat food or meat sacrificed to that idol, or to engage in ceremonial sex, the reason they did that was so that there would be it's a reenactment so that you would have a nice fall uh, harvest uh, in the, uh, when the time came, and in order to work. And that if that was the case, the Lord would tolerate it. He's okay with that. That word tolerate is a very interesting word because there's only one little minor change between the word tolerate and forgive. So it, this is a very interesting word that's being used here. It's a word play that, they, that the, uh, her teaching was being tolerated because she was saying that the Lord would tolerate what you're doing. I mean, after all, let me think about it. It's, it's not by choice, it's by compulsion. Uh, putting food on the table is preferable to starving. Paul said, after all, anybody who read his works knows that uh, food, sacrificed to idols, is what? Nothing. And as for the sex, they would argue that was just the cost of doing business. Now you see, this is where it gets really tricky. Uh, this is where it becomes difficult because even here, even in our time and our day, sometimes we have to choose between a job and a moral standard. And that is the case for some people, not all. It's all very 666, which we'll get to at a, another time. But this is where people become offended. This is where the Scripture tells us to become not celebratory of the differences, but for certain differences to become intolerant. <laughs> Does that hurt your ears? Does that word hurt your ears in our modern society? We're to be intolerant about certain things. Now, Christians are the most tolerant people on the face of the earth. Yes, we are. And outside the church, uh, we are saddened by what we see. But we love the people. What about inside the church? Well, it's one thing to love members of an alternate 
sexual identities or lifestyles or beliefs communities, but it's a whole other thing. So hear me, I am talking about love, but it's a whole other thing to allow those things to be propagated, to be taught, to be celebrated, to be embraced in the church. Those are two separate things. And Thyatira puts us on notice that the Lord holds the church responsible for this. His complaint was, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. It is a problem for the church in Thyatira, and it is a problem for the church in our day and age. I want us to look at this word, tolerate, for just, just a moment. And why our ears are so, it's so harsh to use the word intolerant uh, today. So, social scientist Arthur Brooks, he, uh, he's at the Harvard Kennedy School and also the Harvard Business uh, School. He was the keynote speaker at this month's uh, National Prayer Breakfast. And his theme was a call to love, not a call to toleration. Actually, the title, let me just read the title. Uh, not, not toleration or civility, uh, but love for our political enemies. So Brooks insisted, rightly so, uh, that our political enemies, whatever they are, wherever this, or you are on whatever spectrum, are not stupid and they're not evil. Okay, that's good. Uh, there's much to appreciate you know, in, in what he said. However, what's the philosophy behind what he said? Yeah, I mean, behind the notion about toleration and civility being uh, placed down next to love. Is he speaking biblically? He is speaking conservatively. Biblically, I don't think so. And I'll, I'll tell you why. In, in 2000, this was just... Uh, 20, is that 20 years ago? Somebody help me. <laughs> Tolerance was a virtue. Some of you remember that. Some of you don't because you're too young. But tolerance, to be tolerant of certain things was considered a virtue. Now, to be tolerant is considered a vice. Um the UN published a paper two years ago arguing it this way. The word tolerant is such a patronizing word to tolerate or endure, to put up with, thus implicitly acknowledging that something is unpleasant, inevitable or difficult that we deal with when we tolerate it. Along the lines of the proverb, what cannot be cured must be endured. Okay, so this is the setup, right? The paper goes on to say that such in stoic endurance is marvelous if you're talking about physical health or natural calamities or, you know, your, your financial uh, well-being. But in the context of living peaceably with neighbors who do not think or look or believe or behave like us, is a sad commentary on how ignorantly we look upon others and how foolishly we glorify ourselves and others deserve at best our magnanimity of our tolerance 
See how magnanimous I am because I tolerate. You see where this is going. I hope you do see where this is going. As such, we must consider a new set of goals that celebrates and rejoices rather than tolerates the difference. Let me me translate this a little bit. In 2010, the curriculum of the Chaplain Corps College, where I taught for four years, was changed from tolerance. I was alive and well in teaching during this exact change. No longer can we have tolerance. Now we must have celebration. No longer is it acceptable to see someone as equal and being able to live side by side with them and and disagreeing with them. No! Today we must celebrate. Celebrate. We must rejoice with them whatever it is that they're doing. Can't do it. Not biblically. Biblically it doesn't work that way. And the Lord warns us against it. The punishment assessed against this teaching reflects the sickness that idolatry and immorality always bring. I mean, first, I mean, he, he just really lowers the boom here. He says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. Again, it's another subtle wordplay. Jezebel celebrated the bed, uh, but the Lord was going to put her in a bed she didn't want. I mean, you know, men and women in the ancient Near East were not ignorant of sexually transmitted disease and or jealous uh, men or women who would take your life. This wasn't a mystery to them any more than it is to us. And he says, I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. And then he said, then there are children, those people who follow and then teach what it is that she has said. I will strike them dead. That's pretty harsh language. He's not talking about her biological children. He's talking about people who adopt and propagate this teaching. The death here that he refers to is likely the, such a commitment to evil that it makes repentance difficult. Some people, they'll get up and they'll get boxed in by some uh, sin and they, they, will, not, they will not repent. But it's just here. I want you to notice something. It is just here that we see the most remarkable thing. In the midst of this pounding that the Lord is giving to this teaching and those who adopt it, in the very center of that, He says that He gave her space for repentance. As ever and always, the Lord is merciful. He's caring. He's loving. He's long-suffering. Brothers and sisters, this should be a cold drink on a hot day. This should be a warm drink on a cold day. What a blessing to know the character of our God always gives opportunity for repentance. In a forgiving world, or, uh, in a forgiving God in an unforgiving world, Ron Davis retells the true story of a, a priest in the Philippines who was beloved 
by his parishioners, but who was overburdened by a secret sin that he had committed when he was in uh, seminary many, many, many years before he had repented, but there was no peace, no sense of God's forgiveness. And his parish was a woman who said that occasionally at night when she was dreaming, Jesus would come and talk to her. And they would have a conversation. And so, of course, the, the priest was deeply skeptical. In fact, he didn't really believe, but he thought he would test her anyway. He said, okay, the next time you speak with Christ, I want you to ask him what sin I committed while I was in seminary. The woman agreed. She said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So she came back a few days later and he asked her, well, did Christ visit you in your uh, dream? Yes, yes, he did. And did you ask him what sin I committed in seminary? Yes, I did. What did he say? Well, he said, I don't remember. <laughs> what Jezebel presents to us more than anything is that whatever lies in your past, I know that in a, a group this size, there are some who suffer with shame and guilt. There are things that lie in your past that you would do anything to expunge, to get rid of, to set aside for it never to bother you ever, ever again. Listen to what this woman was doing. She was leading men and women into ceremonial sex in a temple. Eating food sacrificed to idols. Worshipping idols. And what does the Lord say about that? He said, I will forgive. And when I forgive, I forget. It is gone. We do not comprehend in hardly any way the forgiveness of our Lord. It's as far as the east is from the west. While there is breath, He will forgive. And He will forget. Sadly, Jesus said, she was unwilling he gave her space. You know what? We need to give others space as well. We need not mar in our own minds another person's life because of a singular event that they did wrong. We need to adopt very much the Lord's attitude. He is the only way for us to have freedom. When he says my burden's light, he's not talking about working in the church. He's not. He's talking about your heart. He lifts us up. But there is a day of judgment. You see that in verse 23. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches, I see with that gaze the hearts and the minds, and I will repay. 
Here we find a fundamental truth portrayed in the Ben-Hur clip. The gaze of Jesus leaves you with peace. How do you know there's something wrong in your heart that you need to deal with? Is when you look at Jesus and your eyes turn away. Something's wrong. Because when Jesus looks at you, all He wants you to do is feel that unconditional love. A love such that He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for, and not shame, and not reproach, and not fear, and not guilt. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't uh, practice uh, group punishment. (laughs) Not at all. He says this, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden. Only hold on to what you have until I come. He goes on to say, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. In Revelation 22.16, the Lord tells you that he himself is the morning star. Now, this, this, we're going to get into this later, but just to let you know now that that quotation from Psalm 2 is a re- is a reference to the rule of Christ in His earthly kingdom called the millennium. He is not talking about the eternal state because nothing evil ever enters there. He doesn't have to rule with a rod of iron in the eternal state. We will all be loyal, loving uh, members of that society. So what we have here is that the saints will share in His reign. So in closing, what should we do when Jezebel speaks to us? It took me a while. Actually, uh, Barb got it. She put on the little sign there, Hold on. So if I say, Call me Ishmael, what do you think of? Somebody shouted out, Moby Dick. For most people, that does. That brings up Herman Melville's uh, story, Moby Moby Dick. Do you know that was based on a true story? It was based on the whaling vessel, the Essex. It was an 87-foot ship, and they were in the uh, pretty far pretty far south, and uh, they had gotten after a whale, and this was in 1820 or 1822. They'd gotten after a whale, and they had wounded this thing, and this thing didn't flee to the deep. So the first time it hit the vessel, the the first uh, mate, he estimated that it was moving at about three knots. Three knots, it knocked them all down. Boom, they were all knocked down. So then they disappeared for a while and they were starting to begin the repairs and then it came back. He said this time he estimated the speed. He said the thing came up 
and it opened and closed its, its mouth, dove into the water, and he estimated the speed at that ram at six knots. And it split the ship. True story. It was so fast that they had to abandon ship. They, they just they had to get they had to get out of there as fast as they could. And they the lifeboats they didn't even really have to lower them. They just because the water was up, they just had to get in them. And what was it that they put in there first? The first thing that they put in each of the lifeboats was not food. It was not clothing. It was not medical supplies. It was a compass. It was a compass. Because they knew that without a compass, they would all die. Period. And that was the most important thing for them. Everything else at the moment was extra. Now, ultimately, of the crew, only eight survived. But, had they not gotten the compass, they would have all died. Hold on to what? Hold on to comp- the compass. Let me clear the metaphor. Hold on to Jesus Christ. The meaning and the direction that He gives your life. Do not hold to the world's teaching. It will lead you to death, stranded in a hostile an empty ocean of nothingness. Rather, hold to Christ. Hold to Christ. The one who forgives you. The one who loves you. The one who one day will take you home and say to you, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, we are deeply grateful for the life that You give to us. We're so thankful for who You are. It's in Your character that we find all the answers. An intense study of Scripture can reveal many things, but if that study doesn't yield fruit in the heart, It's just so much noise. Let us live lives that are worthy of your calling. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.